Hello, this is Tom Pasello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. Our mission is to provide you with the independent insights, community advice, and tools to guide your sales enablement journey and fuel your professional evolution. My guest today is Scott Sandell. He is the RVP of Insight and Value Services for Palo Alto Networks. He's a longtime value acceleration pioneer and veteran. He served as the vice president of global customer strategy with Oracle. He was a senior principal value engineer with SAP and engagement director with I2 Technologies and creating value programs from scratch, as well as being a key component in some worldwide benchmark practices. We are here to learn, absorb, and action from the master himself. Welcome, Scott Sandell. Uh, th thank you very much, Tom. It's really great to be here on this podcast with you, and hopefully I can provide some good ideas for your followers. So looking forward to it. Awesome. Yeah, the Evolvers community welcomes you. So You've engaged with a lot of prospects, a lot of customers with value. You continue to do that now with Palo Alto Networks and creating a new practice there. What are you seeing in terms of the demand for a value-centric approach? Sure, sure. Great, great question, Tom. And, and, and the simple answer is it's, it's never been higher. Uh, but uh, you know, to, to actually look at it in a little more detail requires a little historical perspective. So if you go back more than a decade plus, you know, for some of us that have been doing this for a while, uh, leading sales organizations, particularly in the technology space, began utilizing value-centric selling mm -hmm. uh, as a, a journey they began. And, and, and more recently, you know, it's, it's been evolving. What we're seeing more and more of is buying organizations are, are getting, uh, you know, across, you know, all the organizations are getting more mature in their processes. And, and, and almost all of them are requiring some level of financial analysis, business case, those types of things for purchase approval. Yep. Beyond that, you know, what we're seeing today is, as I said, this seems to be accelerating uh, everywhere we look. Uh, the pandemic, pandemic has put uh, additional financial stress on many organizations. Purchase approval processes uh, also you know, continue to, to keep more and more strict and hurdle rates and those types of things to move forward. Uh, in fact, uh, we've recently had some of our clients even say to us, gosh, unless you can uh, almost guarantee us a substantial TCO reduction, we're not interested in a discovery process. Mm -hmm. So acceleration in, uh, in that sense. Yeah, I've definitely seen, so from a buyer's perspective, you know, I've talked a lot about the rise of the CF no and the COVID committee. You know, they're designed to say no to projects and we'll say yes. I mean, there's definitely investments being going on in a lot of customers, but it's gotta be tied to the right strategic opportunity and initiative within the company. And it's gotta have solid uh, business value benefits to the organization. And you gotta be able to prove those. And in some cases, like you said, guarantee. And I think we're gonna start to see more kind of guarantee programs coming from different solution providers, or at least some value delivery based pricing and billing perhaps, right? As we move towards customers being more conservative and perhaps the value centric approach and practice um, kind of advance. Are you also seeing, and I know that you a lot of times are called on from different peers on LinkedIn and other things. Are you seeing value at more companies as a practice? Uh, yeah, uh, across the board. And I think it's, um... I think you know some of the big companies, you know, were, were the early adopters and, and and really focused on that. But now I think you're you're starting to see 
a couple variations happen. I think smaller companies uh, are, are realizing they, they need to enter the game early in the cycle. And, and they do this for really good reasons. Uh, you know, typically a smaller company in a, a particular space will have great, great technology and capabilities that might be similar to the larger firm. And so one of their key differentiators is value, is, mm-hmm. a, is a lower TCO. So for them, it's, it's, it's almost an imperative to get their name out that, hey, you know, we, 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 we can do similar types of things for a much lower TCO and that enables their story. Yeah, we um, definitely saw that with like Coupa versus uh, Ariba. Uh, SAP Ariba is one example, right? They kind of based their program on value to compete with the SAP Ariba, which was the established kind of big player in that marketplace. So spot on in terms of that example. Um, I'm also seeing it a lot more different industries. So um, consumer products, manufacturing, places where you wouldn't think value would be as represented, you know, kind of it started more value consulting and value engineering as a practice in the tech space. It's now pervasive. Uh, Shoot, I did a value business case for paint the other day and and apartments for Sherwin-Williams. We did it for a company that does flavor and taste enhancers, uh, natural flavor and taste enhancers and the value of supply chain risk management and things like that. So it's definitely gotten a lot more pervasive. Now, one of the challenges that we face is still a challenge that has existed for a while. So Rain Group, I recently had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of people from Rain Group and going over their research, and they said, making the return on investment, the ROI case clear to me, 66%. It was one of the top four reasons a buyer decided to go with a particular seller and solution provider. However, these same buyers, they indicated that only 16% of sellers were able to deliver that clear return on investment case, a 50-point gap. And it was the largest gap of the four top reasons that a buyer went with a tech, uh, with a service provider. It was the biggest gap in where the seller was falling short of buyer expectations and not meeting those demands, even though it was one of the key purchase criteria. Right. And we've been at this a long time. This seems to be a pervasive issue when it comes to return on investment, the ability to clearly communicate and quantify value. What are you seeing, Scott? Is it still an issue? And how do we get sellers to turn the corner on this and meet buyer demands? Right, right. Absolutely super challenging issue. And and, um, it it is a big gap. And, you know, it's often been said, it's, you know, it's very hard to create a simple story. Yeah. Uh, And, and, you know, you mentioned clear a couple of times. I mean, when we think about it and, and, and something that's been, you know, some of the my mentors and folks that have been in the industry a long time, we actually, it's more than just clear. We, we talk about clear, credible, and concise, or the mm-hmm. three Cs, if that helps you remember it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, that, that everyone understands that. And, and the good news is I think there are some best practices that can help. Uh, so so uh, three come to mind. Um, first, have a reasonable number of quantified benefits for each solution. A lot of people, when they first start on this, they get very excited and they want to have, you know, 20, 30 benefits for something. And, and, and you just, you know, that's not, that's not concise uh, uh, <laughs> and very difficult to make it clear when there's 20 benefits. So, so three to five is a good number. You know, you can inch a little higher, inch a little lower, yeah. but, you know, kind of for your, for each of your key solutions, try and do that. Second, uh, make it super clear 
uh, which of your solution capabilities enable each of those benefits. So a lot of times people get very confused. They say, you know, well, you know, this, this benefit is enabled. And we say, well, well, what in your solution, you know, enables that? And they say, well, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if you're not sure internally, how are you going to do that in a, in a credible way to your customer? You know, so, so, you know, you need to be quite crisp on the capabilities, the, the few capabilities that enable each of those benefits. Third. Uh, key key area is have clear support for you know uh, you know the the default the suggested benefit that you're you're saying your your capability can enable and so that can be uh, a lot of companies they try and have a customer case study around mm -hmm. hey this uh, Sherwin Williams was able to enable this you know paint reduction uh, you know uh, you know paint waste I guess or whatever the key value prop for paint is. Uh, you know, in that area. And, and then some companies will struggle and they'll say, hey, 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 Scott, or, you know, value professional, you know, we don't have that for everything. That's okay, too. But a lot of times, you know, you can go look for analyst reports that, you know, cover the space and they'll say, uh, companies implementing these types of products or solutions receive benefits in these areas. So a good, good credibility statement. And, and, and a super sneaky trick, I hate to almost say it on your show here, look at your competitor sites. A lot of times your competitors uh, might, you know, they're, they're facing a similar type of thing. They're looking for how to create credibility around the solution. So, so if you follow those three things, you know, a simple number of quantified benefits, uh, you know, kind of clear linkage to your solution capabilities and some support for each. Then kind of one last little thing I want to tag on to this that people need to keep in mind is a super key trend is the buyer's journey. More and more of it's happening online. So not only do you have to be, you know, uh, clear, uh, credible, and concise, you also have to have that type of information available on your public website, such that in that buying journey, the customer's already kind of getting that comfort level before they even engage. That's a really good point because a lot of value programs, uh, sometimes they'll just enable the sellers or perhaps even just a small value consulting group that can deliver this. And what you're saying is, no, make sure you're exposing value in the buyer's journey and a self-service um, motion so that sellers can educate themselves on what value you can deliver in a concise, clear, and credible way, and maybe even quantify it for themselves. And one of the things that drives me crazy, Scott, and I don't know if it drives you, you crazy, is you know, you go to a website and there's, you know, give me three data points, you press a button and you get the magical ROI. I, that, that's not the value that we're talking about, right? It's got to be concise. It's got to be clear. It's got to be credible. And the black box magic calculator doesn't necessarily do that in the self-service mode. Absolutely. Awesome. So you're breathing kind of life or renewed life into a value program yourself right now. I don't know if I'm categorizing it right, because I, I know Palo Alto had a practice before, but you're kind of new to it and kind of uh, re-energizing re it and, and sparking it. Um, what are your first couple of steps to make sure that this new journey that you're taking at Palo Alto and the practice that you're creating are off to the right start? Sure, sure, sure. Great question. And, and, and Palo you know, did have an existing value program that was very strong uh, in its own right. But, you know, the interesting thing about Palo Alto is a hyper growth company. Mm -hmm. So our portfolio of products has rapidly expanded and sales have, have taken off. So, so, so even with the good base, it needed, you know, to kind of accelerate to, to, to meet the company demands. 
that being said, I, I, I think for, for the practitioners on the call, you know, the approach I always take is more of a, what I'll call a building block approach. And I think the building block approach is you really got to look at it and say, hey, I'm going to create a calculator in some kind, standard format, template, you know, for each of your company's primary solutions. This is, this, you know, so, so if you, depending on every company's in a different place, but if you don't have that, start there. Once you have that, then you, you need to think about how you're going to launch each of these calculators to the field and, and develop and utilize a documented enablement plan. Uh, you know, because that's how you're really going to kind of start driving usage and those types of things. And, you know, in reference to that plan, make sure the plan has not just launch activities, but follow up activities that, that drive utilization impact over time, because a lot of programs fail where they have the big bang launch, you know, the webinar, the, 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 the WebEx training for all the all the, the folks and then very little follow up, you know, train the trainers, the champions, the success stories. So, so a lot of the, the, the real success comes from that follow through, not from the initial launch. And finally, so you have the building blocks, you figured out how to do that, you figured out how to launch it. Then you can start looking at, you know, where you want to go from there. So, so um, you know, once you have those building blocks in place, you can start to think about what are the highest internal ROI areas to extend the program. For a lot of companies, this is going to be moving the value selling or consulting into business development. Now, that's a very typical migration where companies go. For other companies, it might be lead generation. You know, a lot of a lot of companies really struggling with pipe. How do we we really focus on pipe growth? And then some, uh, it, it might be go to market campaigns. Like, hey, now that we have the building blocks in place, you know, some of our go to market campaigns are combinations of things, and now we can use those building blocks to go do it. So, so your company, and it may be all three of those, but you know, you typically your value program is small enough you can't do everything at once. So, so I, I have found through the years, if you have the building blocks in place, you understand the core value proposition of your primary solutions, you can really take it a long way, you know, once you have that base of the house built. I kind of, and you're looking at pre-sales as kind of the foundation and then Absolutely. talking about moving it then maybe upstream into marketing so the customer self-service and you can engage with value earlier. Um, one of the items that you didn't mention was like post-sale and renewal yeah. and customer success. So. Um, where do you see that fitting in, in kind of accelerating right. value through the whole customer journey? Right, right, right. Absolutely. And I, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I didn't discuss that because I think that's a, a field that typically isn't the first place companies start. Agree. And, 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 and there's a reason for that. If you don't have the building blocks, if you don't understand the core value proposition, you're not in a, a position to talk about value realization against that. So, so, you know, uh, you know, most companies in the technology space, you know, there's hyper growth in the, in the cloud uh, space. So, uh, you know, everything's moving to the cloud, those types of things. And what that drives is uh, a different uh, dynamic, you know, from the on-premise days, those types of things, you know, where you'd sell it, then eight years later, you'd have to worry about it again, those types of things in the cloud space, much more nimble, uh, you know, key, key metric is renewal. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know retention renewal, which is on a much more frequent cycle, and so that's where value realization is is, is critical. Uh, but you know, kind of the, the the way you kind of make that happen is again with those building blocks. You can say, hey, the the value that my solutions enable are these three things. 
So now when you go to the customer success side, the value realization side, instead of asking a customer, and many, and many, many companies have this, and you, and you can see that on their websites, and it's always, it's always uh, it, it pains me internally that they, they, need, they need some value uh, consulting uh, help. But, but you, know, you know, the customer references will read, uh, I, I implemented this solution and it delivered value because I really like the color of the screen or it makes me feel good or whatever and not really hit on real quantifiable business impacts. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that process is because they go ask the customer, hey, what benefits did you realize? Mm-hmm. Versus the, the right approach is if you have in place the, the understanding of what the value levers are, you can have that as a dialogue with the customer. Hey, other customers implementing our solution see benefits in the following areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen benefits in those areas? And, and, and they may tell you other benefits and those types of things. The other kind of secret sauce in that space is what that'll allow you to do is get a whole bunch more uh, customer interactions because now that you have that framework, you can actually implement, hey, for my super big customers, I'm gonna have a detailed interaction process and kind of really build this out and maybe it results in a, in a customer success story that's public or private it's okay uh, but then I can also have a survey process you know to uh, attack more customers because I have this value framework that they can kind of respond to and you know kind of from a full life cycle of, of value management you know that hey super beneficial to drive renewal rates and all those types of things but the nuggets that you capture mm-hmm. and value realization those are gold and you feed those back up to the front end of your process in the value marketing phase, and you're able to say, hey, you know, the, uh, you know, 15 of uh, our top 20 customers at Palo Alto Networks are seeing benefits between 5 and 15% in these areas. would love to work with you to understand what might be your potential. And mm-hmm. in the business case and the pre-sales, the same thing. You're able to talk about real value realization of other customers. So when you're trying clear, concise, and credible, when you're trying to aid that credible step, you now have live figures to be able to point to, look, this is the credibility. This is what other customers are achieving. So yeah, that's, that's the goose that lays the golden egg at the back end of the cycle. Absolutely love it. Now, one of the challenges that we all have is that value consulting resources have become quite scarce as all these programs have exploded within big companies and then smaller companies are implementing them, different industries are implementing those resources. So where do you typically look to fill your value consulting roles that you're you're hiring for and recruiting for? Who's the I, ideal value consultant? Sure, sure, sure. We look so we look anywhere and everywhere. Uh, no, uh, so so yeah, absolutely right. Super, super. Uh, it's a super great time to 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 be in the space and 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 you know again having been in a while, I'm 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 so happy that firms are realizing you know how much value. Uh, these these programs add, and we can talk about that in more detail. But you know, kind of staying focused on the on the people front, uh, it, it's really challenging. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about the space, and, and so I look at a couple of our recent hires. They actually came from consulting our our private equity backgrounds, hmm. and great resources, doing great. But the hard part is a finding them, and b educating them that value engineering value consulting is a great career path you know because they're they're kind of in a different space and so so that's more of a, a relationship and a network and you got to kind of you know folks uh, you know if you hire folks and they're from a particular uh you know business school or different type of educational background you know we encourage them to reach out and network into that space because that's a good way to find folks um and then kind of the the, the other harsh side of this 
is, uh, you know, for experienced hires. And, and, and this is a super challenging thing in the space because, you, know, uh, you know, in a sales organization, you have a giant pyramid and you rise up the pyramid. And value selling organizations, even in the largest organizations in the world, these teams are not particularly large. Mm -hmm. and, and so for experienced hires, if, you, if you're looking to get into, uh, you know, a, a value management role, you know, a managerial position in that, in that function, you know, like a, a company like Palo Alto with a very small team, you know, we have to be very selective. We have very few managerial roles. But, um, you know, so I think you need to think about, you know, if you get into it, uh, you know, the, are, are you going to have to go to a smaller firm where they're just starting a team? And so, so you know, over the years, many, many people that I've worked with are, are for me in different capacities, you know, they've left and they've gone and they've started teams and those teams have grown and it, it's helped spread. But, but yeah. Hiring super challenging. I, I think you almost have to look outside of value engineering, value consulting to find new people. And then, you know, for the managerial roles, you have to just be super selective, you know, because, you know, that's the nature of the size of your team. Yeah. Management consultants, always a, a good source for it. Um, having the subject matter expertise uh, can sometimes be, you know, they may know the finance well and business consulting right. well, may not know the solutions well. So that kind of mapping that clear right. map and, can sometimes be a challenge and i think the management consulting framework i mean what my my experience with a lot of different folks is the folks that folks that, that can do really well in the space do have some type of consulting background hmm. because they're used to you know coming up with a framework thinking about a company yeah. and, and probably one of the, the the most challenging things is that linkage of the company's business objectives to the solution you're selling and a storyline of how your solution enables them to achieve those critical business objectives. And I think that's why consultants, uh, ex-consultants tend to do pretty well. Agree. We're also seeing a lot of pre-sales folks, um, kind of uh, pre-sales collective kind of folks interested in this now. Uh, Absolutely. Kind of getting out of the technical route and either adding a business acumen and the business route to it. And then certain sellers that just don't want to carry a bag anymore, particularly now that we're in these rem more remote environments where they enjoyed being on the road and some things like that, especially ones that have CPAs or some financial background, financial education. Um, yeah. That's been another source that I think is one to look for. Sure. And I think, I think those firms, you know, I love, I love people with solution engineering background because they're tech technical acumen carries them a long way. Uh, there's an old uh, expression about value engineers, it never hurt you to know a little bit more about the product. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so I think that's true. And I also think that um, my experience has been, you know, value engineers, were, you know, our solution engineers where it's a narrower product line. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so they're comfortable carrying a wider piece of the story. Mm -hmm. where it works versus some of the really big organizations I think are disadvantaged uh, because they have such a broad, they, right. they can't be an expert on everything. And so and that makes that transition harder. Yeah. Now, one of the things with any value program is understanding what value the value program is delivering and proving it to the organization. Essential is you try to grow it, try to prove that value is delivering value. Um, how have you measured that in the past? What are some of the, the kind of results without revealing any secret sauce that you, you've achieved? Right, right, right. Well, uh, excellent question. And, you know, I would say not just value programs, but in fact, any kind of sales support program mm -hmm. uh, in companies, you're always going to need to justify the, you know, the outcome and the impact of the program. So it's just a nature, if you're not carrying the, the direct quota, 
any other type of resource is always going to be scrutinized as how much value you add. And so, so yeah. you know, there is no, no free pass and, and folks need to focus on that. That being said, you know, I, I kind of think of this answer as two parts. Uh, you know, I think the, the value consulting resources, you know, those folks working on individual deal cycles, you know, I think the traditional metrics around uh, revenue assist, uh, footprint expansion, and elevating the buying decision are, are things that, you know, we measure here at Palo Alto, things I know I've measured in the past. And, and there's other variations, but I think those are kind of key ones. Then, you know, I also own a scalability effort uh, here at Palo Alto Networks, had, had one at, at Oracle, beginning of one way back in the, the day at SAP. And, and there, so there's a kind of a couple of key metrics you think about. So you think about, uh, uh, you know, for your core value tools, you know, the coverage. So, so either by percent of your portfolio or percent of revenue, what 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 percent of your 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 footprint are you covering with the tool set? And obviously, that's a, a build stage. Uh, then driving usage, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people get you know very focused very quickly on usage, uh, but you know, the, the the key to usage is really you know partnering with the different user groups and understanding you know, who really should be the users of these things. So, so some tools may make sense for an entire team, others may be just for specialists. And so I think you know, kind of understanding that. So I think a lot of people get caught in the, oh, everyone should use it 100% of the time. And that's very rarely the case. Yeah. And so I think understanding that and communicating that to management, here's the target, we've partnered with that team, this is the target, you know, so it's a, and it's not just a value team target, it's the user team target. And so it's got to be a joint target uh, for it to be really successful. And then finally, kind of for both the value engineer types, our value consultants, and for the tools, it's about measuring the impact, which is, I think, mm -hmm. the core of the question. And, 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 and this is probably the toughest metric uh, to measure. And, and, and the reason is, it, it's not actually, let's say, the, the close rate that you want to measure, it's the incremental close rate versus not using the value services. Mm -hmm. So it's an even higher bar. So some, some companies are people, you know, they go, oh, well, there's my close rate. And I'm like, well, what's your close rate without it? You know, I'm like, oh, okay. So, 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 you know, much different types of things. And it's super hard to measure. I mean, uh, the, you know, leading firms where you can do CRM integration and track the cycle and those types of things makes it a heck of a lot easier. But uh, a lot of times it, you end up with more of a survey environment where, you know, hey, you survey the users, did it help you push the forward deal? Did, you know, did it close, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that's the kind of thing. And, and then finally, you know, super important, remember you have to have a control group, uh, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, you know so, so I think, you know, being able to compare where you are versus those out and, and, and kind of creating a, a simple, incredible metric for management of that's the delta you did. Finally, I think to, to your, your core answer, and this is probably the exciting piece or, you know, the super positive piece is, you know, over the years, every time I've done this, every time I've, you know, said it, management said, hey, we got to really dig in and understand this. You know, when you, you know, the, the good news is, is when you quantify the impact of value programs, you know, even if you're doing just basic stuff, what you're going to find is just an awesome internal ROI for your investment. Because, you know, if you're, you're, if you're only slightly moving the needle, on close rate or deal size, uh, a, a number of companies discount rate, you know, just a small movement down discount rate. And the cool thing about discount rate is 100% to the bottom line. Yeah. Now, that's not a margin. Those are incremental full dollars or euros or marks or wherever you are. But uh, yeah, so, so I think uh, the good news is, 
you practitioners out there, you know, if you put a little elbow grease, even if you're using surveys and different types of informal metrics, what you're going to find is, is this crazy positive ROI. Awesome, Scott. That's what we need. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. What's the one piece of advice? I know we covered a lot of ground today from concise, clear, credible to ways to track success with adoption and scale and uh, revenue assist. And then finally, the deal metrics. What's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave the evolvers with today? Well, uh, that's a tough question because I'm not a, a one, one guy, but, but I'll take a swing. A one piece guy. So, so I think, you know, the, 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 what's great about value selling and, and, and value uh, practitioners is, you know, think, think as it relates to your company, think of it as a transformation journey. Mm -hmm. Wherever you are, you know, there's always a, a long way and, and significant improvement you can make. So think of it as a transformation journey. So, so the way I think about it, uh, and a lot of, I know other leaders think about it the same way, it, it is, you know, we have this aspiration aspirational goal that doesn't happen overnight to make DNA part of the, the core core value selling part of the core DNA of your company. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, you know, kind of stop, you know, pause, look around and, and kind of think about what are the high ROI, internal ROI projects you can do to contribute to that. And so kind of pretty much every place I've ever been, I try and kind of figure out a whole series of things that I can achieve in a quarter or two demonstrate results, demonstrate progress, and kind of work through them. And so if you're, if you're moving the needle towards transforming value selling to being a part of your company's DNA, you're on the right path, and just kind of chunk it up into pieces and understand you can't do it all at once, you know, kind of pick a, a high selling product, pick a growing territory, you know, pick, pick whatever, you know, pick demand generation, pick whatever it is that makes sense for your company, and kind of execute that piece and then keep moving to the next one. And it's stepwise, continuous, even if you start small, right? It's not just a do one thing and all of a sudden you're, you've achieved success. Um, Scott, it's been absolutely amazing. I know I learned a lot from this and I know our Evolvers audience did as well. For those who still have questions or want to reach out to you online, how best to do that? Sure. I, uh, my LinkedIn profile is, uh, you know, just my Scott Sindel. Uh, easy to find Palo Alto Networks. Uh, always happy to help and, and um, you know, love comparing, uh, you know, learning from what other companies are doing as well. Thank you very Absolutely. much for your time, Tom. Oh, no, thank you. We will share your LinkedIn address in the meeting notes so you'll be able to reach out to Scott, connect with him. He is happy to help, has collaborated and shared a lot of his experiences here but has done so with me many, many times over the years. So really appreciate that, Scott, all your uh, support and advice and um, learnings and teachings that you've given to others uh, who've taken this as a career path too. I know a lot of people look up to you as a mentor to them uh, that are out there in the value consulting and value engineering wor uh, world. Thank you so much for participating, Scott. Thank you very much, Tom. Always a pleasure and, and good luck to, to you and all your followers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time, Evolvers, keep evolving.